undeserving sinners, we would be hopeless. But God has done a wonderful work for us in extending grace. Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14 this morning. If you would please turn there. Mark chapter 14. We will dismiss young people right now for time in the word as the Duncans are working in the upper room this morning. So head up there. Are working in the upper room, yes. Are teaching in the upper room. I don't know, they're going to work them over today. All right, so young people, head on out. Mark chapter 14. Maybe you've heard the name the Flying Wallendas. It was a circus act. A group of daredevil stunt performers who performed high-wire acts without a safety net, and they did it for the Ringling Brothers and Barnum Bailey Circus. You say, I have no idea what that is. All right, that tells me how old you are, all right? But it was in 1928 that the Wallundas were hired. By the way, I wasn't around then either. <clears throat> Just want you to know that. But uh, they, were, they were hired by... Um, by uh, I think it was uh, the the one of the one of the brothers uh, to do an act. And by the way, you know the reason they didn't have a net. I, I learned this uh, as I was reading uh, the story about their lives is because when they showed up for the first day, their debut as they were announced to be this great group, uh, their net didn't show, and and they they it was lost somewhere in in the the thing and the show had to go on and so they went on without a net and that's how it all kind of started and uh so they act and it was an amazing thing well uh the great wallendas is how they started out in name but they ended up being called the flying wallendas uh and i think it was in the 1940s when a press release used that term for them carl was by far one of the best trapeze artists of his day. He, in, he invented and developed a number of impressive acts. They had a seven-person chair pyramid, uh, which I, I, yeah, actually I did see that, I think. So, and he did numerous what they called death-defying stunts. You know how they used to announce those things and make that a big deal. Uh, one such uh, event was crossing the... Tallula, I'm going to get that wrong, Gorge in uh, Georgia uh, on a high wire. He did that in Ju on July 18, 1970. Get this, when he was 65 years of age, he was absolutely fearless. Yet on March 22, 1978, eight years later at age 73, Carl began a promotional walk between the towers of the Condado Plaza Hotel in San Juan, Puerto Rico, 100 feet off the ground, and he fell to his death. Why did Walenda fall? What caused his death? You know, you might think it was some, like, the wire failed. You might ponder. I mean, here's a guy that had done this all his life. He was fearless and everything else. You might think that there was some gust of wind or some other unpredictable thing that happened, and it wasn't. Nothing happened unusual that day when he was on the wire. So what caused his death? Well, Linda's wife said that before her husband had fallen, for the first time since she had known him for years, he had been concentrating on falling instead of on walking the tightrope. 
As a result, he personally supervised the attachment of the guide wires on that building, in between those buildings. He had never done that before. And as a result of those little things, little things, probably what no one would have noticed except his wife a little bit later on thinking about that being strange or whatever, just a little change of focus, he went from an amazing success to a failure. It wasn't something big. It wasn't something huge. It was just something very small. And you know, quite honestly, in life, many times the difference between success or failure rests not in some major deviation or some major catastrophe that happens. It really takes place because some little thing here or there is laid aside, and as a result, one gets tripped up. It is that fact that I hope will challenge and exhort you today from Mark chapter 14 as we read a story that is famously well known by the failure of Peter. But I entitled the message today, A Tale of Two People. And I hope you'll understand why a little bit later on. Follow along, if you would, as we pick up in verse 26, where we've left off in our study. And it says, And when they had sung in him, they went out into the Mount of Olives. And Jesus saith unto them, All ye shall be offended because of me this night. For it is written, I will smite the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered. But after that I am risen, I will go before you into Galilee. But Peter said unto him, Although all shall be offended, yet will not I. And Jesus saith unto him, Verily I say unto thee, that this day, even in this night, before the cock crowed twice, thou shalt deny me thrice. But he spake the more vehemently, If I should die with thee, I will not deny thee in any wise. Likewise also said they all. And they came to a place which is named Gethsemane, and he saith unto his disciples, Sit ye here while I shall pray. And he taketh with him Peter and James and John and began to be sore amazed and to be very heavy and saith unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful unto death. Tarry ye here and watch. And he went forward a little and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible unto thee. Take away this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will but wilt what thou wilt. And he cometh and findeth them sleeping and saith unto Peter, Simon, sleepest thou? Couldest thou not watch one hour? Watch ye and pray, lest ye enter into temptation. The spirit truly is ready, but the flesh is weak. For the sake of time, we're going to stop right there and let's pray and ask God to direct our steps. Father, I pray that you would open our eyes, our minds, our understanding to the truth of your word today. Help us to see the important lesson that's found here in Mark chapter 14. And help us, Lord God, to, to see these, the tale of two people and understand that it wasn't just a major deviation, but it was something what many people would consider insignificant or small that led to great failure and that also led to success. And I pray that you would give us understanding that we would come away 
with a grasp of and, and a readiness to learn from and put into practice what we see in Mark chapter 14. And I will thank you for your help. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is a tale of two people. And if you would, the small thing that made the great difference. If you didn't catch it, we'll, catch, we'll get to it a little bit later on, probably more toward the end of the message. But I'd like to walk with you through the passage this morning and kind of share with you some of the things that are going on. We didn't read all of it. I'm hoping that in, in one way you're a little bit familiar with the passage here because we are on the march, if you would, as we've talked about so many times. We're on the march to the cross. Mark being one who didn't take a lot of time and didn't get into a lot of details. He just basically laid it out straightforward. This is who Jesus is. The great servant, the one who served all men, and then the one who served his father and went to the cross, willingly died on the cross for our sins, was buried and rose again the third day. He is the Messiah, the Savior of the world, and he wants to save you. And that's the message of Mark. And we are in the midst of that. Now we are at the, the final stages. We're right before the cross. The cross is, uh, well, the cross is tomorrow, at least at the time where we're reading here. Because all night Jesus spends in prayer as he talks to the Father and, and, uh, and as he submits to the Father's will. And that's what's taking place in our passage. And as we read in the passage, we see, first of all, in verses 26 to 31, the predictions. Yes, the predictions. The disciples have just finished eating the Passover in the upper room. Many important events have transpired there in that upper room. Judas has left. He is ready now to betray Jesus Christ. And a little bit later in this very passage, that is what happens. When he comes, he kisses the master, identifying him to be the, the uh, Jesus the one that they're trying to get, the soldiers then, the, the, the servants of the high priest then take Jesus Christ. And in this uh, important event, and right in this section, we find Jesus Christ making a number of predictions. Notice right at verse 27, he saith unto them, all ye shall be offended because of me this night. So he predicts that they will be offended do you know what Jesus meant when he said they'd be offended? It's kind of interesting to me, at least it was, to look it up. The word in the Greek might sound a little bit familiar to you. Uh, the word in the Greek is skandalizo, from which we get the word scandal, all right? There was going to be a scandal, something that would come up. Now, the word and the meaning there was that something was going to trip, trip them up. Something was going to snare them. A scandal was going to happen, if you would. Something was going to cause them to stumble, and Jesus said, this is what's going to happen. Now, he also said that this is what the Bible prophesies. He looked back, and he said, hey, listen, the Old Testament teaches this. You smite the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. That's what's going to happen, and it's coming. Now, why would he call it a scandal? Why would he call it something that would trip them up? The reason why is because they believed that Jesus was the Messiah, and as a believer in Jesus as the Messiah and understanding Old Testament truth, they believed that he was going to set up his kingdom. They believed he was going to reign and rule. And so their idea was not he's going to die, even though, you remember he said already five times, 
five times before his death. In the last, like, week and a half before his death, I'm going to die, I'm going to be buried, I'm going to rise again. I'm going to die, I'm going to rise again. In fact, in this passage, he says the same thing. I'm going to die, I'm going to rise again. Five different times he tells them, but they still didn't have that in mind. And so something was going to trip them up. Well, what would trip them up? They believed Christ was going to be made the Messiah and, and, and proclaim the king, and he was going to take over the Roman government. He was going to rule and reign. And, well, it wasn't going to happen. And that very night, that very, that very next morning, Jesus was going to be taken. And so he predicts, you're going to fail. You're going to fall. You're going to be offended. You're going to be tripped up. You're going to stumble because of me. So he, he shared not only that, he shared something else. Notice this. I will smite the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered. So he said, hey, look, not only are the sheep going to be scattered, not only are you going to be offended, but I'm telling you something, I'm going to die. And as we just mentioned a few moments ago, five times he said this in a very short period of time. Look in verse 28. This is not found, by the way, it's in Zechariah chapter 13 and verse 7 where the prophecy is made. But this next statement isn't found in Zechariah chapter 13. And what Jesus said is, yes, I'm going to die. The shepherd's going to be smitten. But I want you to know, after that I'm risen, I'll go before you into Galilee. So you're going to be tripped up tonight. You really shouldn't be because I'm going to die and I'm going to rise again. And that's the reason why I came the first time anyway. But you're going to be tripped up. And when you're tripped up, you need to know that I'm going to rise again and I'm going to see you again. So he predicts their offense. Not only that prediction, he predicts his death and his resurrection. And then, and then he predicts something that also isn't found in the Old Testament scriptures. Look at verse 30. And Jesus saith unto him, because Peter answered in verse 29. And Jesus said, Verily I say unto thee, that this day, even in this night, before the cock crowed twice, thou shalt deny me thrice. Three times, Peter, you will deny me. That's what Jesus Christ said. He predicts Peter's denial. So we have in verses 26 to 31 the predictions. Now we have as well a pompous or a proud reply. Now I don't know how Peter said this. And actually, in some ways, you know, we're, we're always critical of people because we know the end from the beginning. It's kind of like you start reading David's story with Bathsheba, and we know the story, we know the end from the beginning. So we're already critical of David when we come to that chapter. Am I right? Because you already know the story. In this story, we know that Peter's going to fail. We know it's going to happen and everything else. But uh, so we would say Peter was pompous and he was proud. And in a sense, I think there is some things that indicate that. For example, you know, if all men, all other men deny, look, look, these guys, they may, not me. Okay, that's the way I kind of detect Peter saying it. But we don't know. You know, quite honestly, he could have said, he could have just been saying in all honesty, hey, look, I don't know what other people are going to do. But as far as I'm concerned, I'm going to serve you, Lord. I'm not going to fail you. Now, now, Peter should have got it. He should have got a number of things. He should have got the fact that the Old Testament said this was going to happen. And if the Old Testament said it was going to happen, he shouldn't have been questioning the Old Testament because God's word never fails. It's always true. And Jesus said that. But you know, they missed five different times when Jesus said, I'm going to die and rise again. So you think that maybe they just didn't really listen all that well anyway in the first place. And here it is. It's nighttime, all right? They're out in this garden, and Jesus all of a sudden says, "We're in a, you know, everyone's going to be offended. So Peter then answers like he would probably normally, normally do, and his first reply is, not me. All right, even though the scriptures say it, and even though everyone else may do it, okay, I, I'm going to be the exception to the rule. 
And let me tell you something. This is another thing. We not only get critical of Peter, but we never see ourselves in these stories. You know, we would say, well, that's not me. And, and here's, the, here's the truth. Look at the end of verse 31. What does the end of that verse say? Likewise said they, said they all. Look, these men all believed that they would be faithful to Jesus Christ. They all believed they would do what they were supposed to do. They all believed that they would go the right direction. If they were called upon and if they were put in a, in a, in a compromising, a questionable situation, if they faced a scandal, they were convinced, I'd do what's right. So, so let's not just jump on Peter. Let's understand that you and I have the same tendency. And we know that we have that tendency because in the Bible we're told many times that we need to be aware of the tendency to think we're going to handle this. We have in our own strength, in our own ability, the, the, if you would, the power to do the things that are right and to act in a right way when we're put in a pressure situation. But here's the truth. You and I don't. Do you know what Paul told to the church at Corinth? And we don't have time to look it up this morning, but it's a powerful passage. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he was talking about how the Israelites got tripped up and how they fell into sin and everything else. And the Israelites, the Jews, you know, they never probably thought they were going to get involved in sinful things. And Peter, and sorry, Paul makes a statement as he's writing there in that passage. And he said this, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. So before we all just, you know, point the finger at Peter and say, ah, oh, man, you're just weak, Peter. Yeah, we know you're going to blow it anyway because that's what we do when we come to a passage and we know the story already. Let's come to the passage and say, you know, Peter did quite honestly what every one of the other disciples were probably nodding in agreement to. And Peter did what, quite frankly, you and I would have a tendency to do. And that is to proudly think, I can stand for God, I can live for God, I can do what God wants me to do, I can make my life count, and I will not fail, my Lord. But here's the truth, that God wants us to know, you won't without his help. You can't without his help. You don't have the ability and you don't have the strength within yourself and the tale of two people tells us that in the rest of this chapter. So that was the pompous or proud reply. Not me! And then the second reply, I, verse 30, is, it gets even better. Verily I say unto thee, uh, or Jesus said in verse 30, I'm sorry, and then in verse 31, but he spake the more vehemently, if I should die with thee, I will not deny thee in any wise. There is no way, Lord, I will fail you. I wouldn't do it. Um, well, you know, anyone can talk a good talk. Isn't it true? Anyone can talk a good talk. But when the rubber meets the road, then we find out what we're really made of. And we find out, here's the truth, in many ways, and this passage teaches us, we're made of dust. Our flesh is indeed weak. And quite frankly, Peter isn't an exception to the rule. Peter is the rule. You and I are like him. And as much as 
we would like to think, I'm going to live for God. I'm going to make a life count for God. I am going to always do what God wants me to do, and I am not going to fail my Lord. The truth of the matter is no one in this room who names the name of Jesus Christ has the ability to live for God in your own strength. You don't. You don't have the power. You don't have the ability. Now, determination is a good thing. Self-confidence is a bad thing. Determination is part of winning the victory, but self-confidence and confidence in your own ability and your own strength totally and completely is certainly a dangerous thing. And so God is going to share with us in this passage because I see in verses 32 to 42 what we'll call the preparation. So we have uh, Jesus making the predictions and Peter with his pompous or proud reply saying, well, I won't do what you say I'm going to do. But in verses 32 to 42, we have, we have someone preparing and someone not preparing. That's true. We have Jesus preparing and we have Peter not. So the stage is set. Jesus says, Peter, you're going to deny me. Peter says, I'm going to be faithful to the end. Who do you think's right? <laughs> yeah, there don't need any help with that one. We know what's going to happen. We already know the end. Okay, that's true. But both are going to be tested later in this chapter about their faithfulness. Both. It is a tale of two people. We preach this passage. I've heard it preached so many times. Peter's failure. This is not just about Peter's failure. This is about Jesus Christ and his success. That's right. Because in these verses, starting in verse 32 and on through verse 42, we have the preparation, and Jesus is doing the preparation he needs, and Peter is not. First thing we find is that Jesus surrenders. In verses 32 to 36, they come to Gethsemane, and Jesus, after making this prediction and having this conversation, he prepares by praying. And notice this. Look in verse 34. My soul is exceeding sorrowful unto death, right? So Jesus explains here, this is where I'm at because I'm going to die. I just told you that and I'm going to rise again. So my soul is exceedingly sorrowful. It's coming. It's coming, people. So what does he tell him to do? Watch. Watch. Look, that's significant. He's going to say in a few moments, watch and Pray. That's a significant point. All right, so men, look, I'm going to go. I'm going to go somewhere for a little bit. I'm just going to take a few steps away, and I'm going to do what you've seen me do before anyway, and what I've done sometimes all night. I'm going to go, and I'm going to spend some time in prayer. And here's what he tells them. Stay awake. Wow, that's a good message. Stay awake. Hey, this morning, stay awake, would you? All right. That's all I'm asking you. Of course, you'll just say, well, I'm like the disciples. I, I guess that's the way it is. But, uh, you know, stay awake. That was the message. But that wasn't the only thing. He knows what's coming. He knows the pain, the suffering, and the events of the cross. And he prays a prayer of surrender to the will and plan of the Father. This here in this passage is, is perhaps one of the uh, most precious pictures of the humanity of Jesus Christ as he agonizes in prayer, as he comes before the Father. And the Bible tells us in other passages, again, Mark doesn't get into detail, and I, I don't want to get off into other passages, and we're not. There's a lot more that could be said because there's a lot more in other passages. But 
Jesus sweat, as it were, great drops of blood. It was an agonizing time. It was a time when he went before the Father. He pours out his heart, and he says, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass for me. As a, as a human being, he understands and he knows because he knows all things. The agony that's coming before him. I believe that he understood that the, the greatest agony and the greatest pain would be that throughout from eternity past, for all of the past, there, there, he always has been. He always has been in existence. But he and the Father had always known perfect communion with one another. Whatever the Father wanted, whatever the Father desired, whatever the Son spoke of, whatever the Son desired, they were always in perfect union and they always worked perfectly together. There was one time in the existence of Jesus Christ that wasn't going to happen and that was when he was on the cross bearing your sin and mine in his body on the tree. And knowing that and knowing the agony that would come from the fact that at, at one point and only one point in his entire existence, which is eternal, he and the Father would not be that, you say, as, as one, but that there would be a break because the Father could not look on him as he bore the sin of the world. And so... In agony, he comes before the Father and says, I know this is coming. I know these things are, are going to take place. And humanly, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, it's not my will, but thine. I know this is necessary. I know the need. I know that if I don't do this, the world is going to be lost for all eternity. And so he surrenders. In three different times, this scenario takes place. If you were to read through this, you would find that to be the case. Three different times, he goes and he prays. And when he comes back, Jesus, when he, as he surrenders, Peter is sleeping. So are James and John. Because they were tired. What should they have been doing? Well, if you go to verse 38, or verse 37, Simon, sleepest thou? Couldst thou not watch one hour? Watch and pray, lest ye enter into temptation. The spirit truly is ready, but the flesh is weak. And so we have the preparation in these verses. Jesus is preparing. Peter's preparing. You say, Peter's preparing? That's right. Peter was preparing by sleeping. Jesus was pre preparing by praying and surrendering. Peter was preparing for defeat, Jesus was preparing for victory. And it was in that deed and those acts that the great difference was made. This passage is a tale of two people. It's not one guy who failed Jesus. It's two people, one who was faithful and one who failed. One who did what he was supposed to do and another who didn't. One who took the time to get alone with the Father and surrender, and another who slept and didn't take the time to watch and pray. The preparation is so clear in this passage. And it's, it's interesting that Jesus said, Terry, here, here, back in verse 34, watch. Okay, look, gentlemen, watch. It's coming. You need to be ready. Watch. And so what were they doing? Well, they were asleep. 
Now, then we have, starting in verse, verse 43 and on through verse 72, yes, a large portion of it, we have the peril or the pressure or the scandal, right? Because we said it was a scandal. All right, what was the scandal? Well, if you look in verse uh, 43, and immediately while he yet spake cometh Judas, one of the twelve, and with him a great multitude with swords and staves from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. And he that betrayed him who had given them a token, saying, Whomsoever I shall kiss, the same as he. Take him and lead him away safely. As soon as he was come, he goeth straightway to him and saith, Master, Master, and kissed him. And they laid their hands on him and took him. And then one of them that stood by drew a sword. And Jesus talks about it. You come out. I was daily in the temple teaching and preaching. But uh, it, I love verse 49. The scriptures must be fulfilled. Do you see the end of that? Look, Jesus was saying, okay, look, I know what the Bible says. I know what the scriptures say. And this has to happen because I've surrendered. I've been doing what I needed to do. Now it's time. Here's the scandal. Jesus was doing that. And what were the disciples doing? Well, look at verse 50. And they all forsook him and fled. And I, who knows why they tell that story, except many people believe that it was Mark and he was kind of given his own story because no one else, no other one records this, that a guy had a, a cloak on him and, and, Jesus, and, and he started to run. Someone grabbed it and he ran away naked. What a story. I don't even know why you'd want to put that in there. That's by inspiration, you know. God just said, okay, you got to tell them the truth, Mark. I don't know. But anyway, it says, They led Jesus away to the high priest, and with him were assembled all the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes. And in these verses, we find, we find that first the disciples flee at the time of peril or pressure when we find Jesus Christ standing firm and saying, The Bible has told me this is what's going to happen. The scripture has to be fulfilled. Then we find Jesus being faithful. The disciples flee, but Jesus is faithful. He has relinquished his rights and he surrenders. Say, what well, he relinquished his rights and he surrenders, yes. And they treat him like dirt. An illegal trial, according to law, that the Jewish leaders had no right to hold. And if you read through this, it is really interesting the things that Mark says. I. I really wish we had weeks to go through this passage because there are so many very, very interesting things here about the trial in, in itself, the trial of Jesus, an illegal one, trumped up charges which couldn't be proved, a vote to condemn him without any valid proof of any uh, act worthy of death. Let me share a few things. And, and again, we don't have time. In verse 55, look if you would. Chief priests and all the council sought for witness against Jesus to put him to death. And you tell me what the next three words say. Uh, what is that? I, oh, wait a second. I'm not sure I heard that right. What? That's right. Because Jesus had done no wrong and he, they couldn't find witnesses that could prove anything that he did that was wrong, ever, because he was sinless. No witnesses could be found to put Jesus on death row. In verses 56 to 60, the witnesses they did had, did have, didn't testify the same thing. So it says this, for many bear false witness against him. So a lot of people lied. But here's what it says at the end of verse 56. Their witness, next three words, agreed not together. So you know what? Someone said, oh, yeah, well, he did this. Another person will say, well, he did this, and those stories wouldn't jive. They didn't go together. 
No one witnessed the same thing. So get this, they're having this trial. Here's this trial. They couldn't find anyone that could accuse him of any wrong that he had done. No one. They couldn't find anyone. A bunch of liars got up and said something, but their testimony wasn't consistent so that we couldn't say, hey, three people said the same thing about this. Couldn't do that. There wasn't a witness that was consistent at all between at least even two people. So they had nothing to hold Jesus Christ on. Nothing. No one could blame any fault upon him. The witnesses that did come were a bunch of liars, and their witness wasn't the same. Do you get this? This is just an amazing thing. A verdict of guilt would have been a criminal thing, and it was, because they had nothing at all. As ex an exacerbated, I knew I was going to say I have a hard time with that, exasperated high priest has asked him repeatedly if he's the Christ. Look at verse 61. He held his peace and answered nothing. Again, the high priest asked him and said unto him, Art thou the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? You see that word uh, again the high priest asked him? Yeah, numerous times. Same thing. Are you the Christ? Are you the Christ? Are you the Christ? So he comes in and, and again he says, Are you the Christ? In fact, uh, one says, I adjure thee by the most high God. Well, you know what? When, when you do that, when you bring the father in on this, the son needs to answer. And he does, and he tells the truth. But get this, nothing worthy of condemnation, nothing worthy of death. No, nothing at all. And rather than accept the fact they have no case against him, for he had done nothing worthy of a death sentence, they keep questioning until they can distort his words and use them to render a guilty verdict. He's guilty! Well, why? Witnesses? No. Uh, none of the ones that witnessed said the same thing, and no one found anything wrong with him. Well, well then what is it? Well, he said this, and that's what we, we think. It's wrong. He's worthy of death. That's it. It was an opinion based on their opinion. Not a truth, not a fact at all. And they conclude this illegal trial with mistreatment of the Son of God in verse 65. They spit on him, they covered his face, they buffeted him, and say unto him, prophesy. And by the way, it wasn't the servants who did that. You say, well, it was, yes, and the servants. You know who was doing this? The high priests, the religious rulers, spitting on him. But rather than fight back, how's Jesus respond? Nevertheless, not thy will, not my will, but thine be done. Jesus surrenders his will to the Father. The disciples flee. Jesus is faithful. Well, then we come in verse 66, and we have Peter fail. Disciples flee. Jesus is faithful. Peter flees. Or, or fails, sorry. Fails. I said disciples flee. Peter fails. Three times. Three opportunities. Okay. All right. First one comes. I, I saw you with him. Oh, don't know him. Okay, strike one. <laughs> there we go. That's how we would describe it, right? And so, you know, someone comes up a little bit later. I don't know him. Strike two. Third one. 
I, this is an, an amazing thing. He, he began to curse and to swear, saying, I know not this man of whom you speak. And Peter uh, fails our Lord. Um, the cock crows. Peter remembers what the Lord said. And at the end of verse 72, when he had thought thereon, he wept. Okay, let, let me just share. Let's, let's close with the principles. Okay, this passage is not just a lesson in failure. This is a lesson in, in, in sin and success. Someone failed. Someone was faithful. And don't miss that. Because sometimes we look at this and we just talk about Peter. And we fail to realize that Jesus was successful. You say, well, he was Jesus. He was God. It's not fair comparison. I mean, you know, Peter and Jesus. Well, well, all right, but, but you got to understand something. Jesus patterned what he told Peter he needed to do. And this passage, quite frankly, is a picture of, if you would, now Jesus is God, yes. But it's two human beings who responded. One responded in a wrong way and one responded properly. And the reason the difference is, according to Jesus' words himself, watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation. Jesus faced great scandal throughout the day, but Jesus was faithful each and every time. Peter faced scandal and he failed. And the difference, according to Jesus' words himself, was this. You're sleeping, I'm praying. You're sleeping, I'm surrendering. You're failing, I'm doing the thing that I need to do. And if you want to say, well, it's not really fair because Jesus is the Son of God, and that is indeed true, uh, the fact of the matter is Jesus' trial was far greater than Peter's. And Jesus said himself, according to one of the other, um, one of the other reporters in the Gospels, Jesus said himself, you know, at one point, if I wanted to call legions of angels, I could. As the song goes, he could have called 10,000 angels. He could have at any time said, enough, I'm done. But he didn't. And he agonized all the way through the pain of the cross and everything involved with it. And he fulfilled everything that was written of him on that day after going through an entire night without sleep. His power came in prayer, watching in prayer. That's where it came. It is a tale of two people, one who sinned and one who is a success. And what made the difference was watching and praying. This is a lesson in success versus sin. It's a lesson in the inadequacy of self-reliance. Don't be mistaken. Peter was determined. You don't think Jesus was determined? Absolutely. Determination is part of victory. I mean, you go back. His statements were pretty bold. And, and yeah, there was, there was some pride in this. But look, he was determined. In fact, look at what Jesus said himself in verse 38. Watch ye and, and pray, lest ye enter into temptation. What did he say? The spirit 
Hey, look, I, I, almost, I almost venture, I almost catch this. I almost say Jesus saying, you know, Peter, your enthusiasm is good. The Spirit's willing, Peter. This is good. I'm glad for that. But Peter, you got to know this. Your flesh is weak. Hey, Christian, look, look you and I are going to face scandals in life, things that will trip us up and cause us to sin and go away from God and get out of the will of the Father, just like Jesus faced and Peter faced on that day. And the difference, the difference maker is not going to be whether you're determined or not. You can be determined as you want. You can come up and you can get on your knees and say, God, I just, I've sinned and I don't want to ever do this again. Haven't you done that? I, I have. I've done that plenty of times. And you know what? Yeah, yeah, probably like six months later, back again. Lord, I don't want to ever do this again. Why did I get here again? Please forgive me. Hey, am I the only one that's done that? Oh, good. At least there's three of you. Thank you. <laughs> Look, we, we all battle with this. So what's the difference maker? Determination is part of it. You got, hey, look, if you don't care, you're not going to live for God. I understand that. But Peter cared. Lord, I'm not going to betray you. The spirit indeed is willing. Peter, man, this is good. you got determination. All right, but determination alone won't help you. Determination alone is not going to bring success to your life. This is a tale of two people. And Jesus was determined. Peter was determined. But Peter failed. Jesus didn't. It's a lesson in the inadequacy of self-reliance or determination alone. There's got to be a change in how you approach things. You've got to watch and pray. Preacher told this story I thought it was interesting. He said, I'm sitting in a quiet room at Mycroft Inn, a peaceful little place hidden back among the pine trees about an hour out of Toronto. It's past noon, late July. I'm listening to the desperate sounds of a life or death struggle going on just a few feet away. What was going on? Was someone dying? No, there was a small fly burning out, out the last of its short life energies in a futile attempt to fly through the glass of a window pane. See, that's what preachers do. They just sit there and they watch flies fly into window panes. Sorry. <laughs> That's all we do all day. I just got to get some more flies in my office. The, the whining wings tell the poignant story of the fly's strategy. Try harder. But it isn't working. He wrote, the frenzied effort offers no hope for survival. Ironically, the struggle is part of the trap. It's impossible for the fly to try hard enough to succeed at breaking through the glass. Nevertheless, this little insect has staked its life on its reaching its goal through raw effort and determination. The fly is doomed. It will die there on the windowsill. And then his marvelous observation. Across the room, 10 steps away, the door is open. The seconds of flying time 10 seconds, I'm sorry, of flying time, and this small creature could reach the outside world it seeks. Only a fraction of the effort he's now wasting, it could be, and free him of this self-imposed trap. The breakthrough possibility is there. It would be so easy. Why doesn't the fly try another approach? Something dramatically different. 
How did it get so locked in on the idea that this particular route and determined effort offer the most promise for success? What logic is there in continuing until death to seek a breakthrough with more of the same? No doubt this approach makes sense to the fly, but it's an idea that will kill him. Trying harder isn't necessarily the solution to achieving more. Listen, this, is, this really is good. Trying harder isn't necessarily the solution to achieving more. Trying har harder doesn't offer um, any real promise for getting what you want out of life. In fact, sometimes it's the big part of the problem. If you're staking your hopes on a breakthrough of, of just trying harder and flying into the window over and over and over again, and this is the way I'm going to do it because I will never deny my Lord and I'm going to be faithful and I'm going to do the Father's will and I am going to do it and I'm going to do it this time and this time I'm going to be successful and this time I'm not going to fail and I'm not going to do it again, then you're just going to beat yourself against the window till you die. He's right. He's right. If you think this time I'm going to win, this time I'm going to break through the window, and it's self-determination alone, you're going to be sitting on the windowsill getting ready for a revival service to do it once again. And something's got to change. Part of victory comes in realization I can't guarantee victory because I don't have the ability in myself to win over sin. I can't do it. Peter was determined. His spirit was ready and willing. He was committed, but the commitment wasn't enough. His flesh was weak, and the same is true for you and me. So this is a lesson in the importance of surrender. What made the difference? I, I don't know about you. I've made many decisions and commitments throughout life to do right, only to fail. Many times the failure has come not because of a great error, not because the, the, the tightrope broke, not because there was a strong wind or some person threw something at me and distracted me. A lot of times I, I fail because, because just little things that I don't do that I don't see as important, but are vitally important. I fail to watch and pray. It can't be that simple! Then you are arguing with Jesus Christ. You're arguing against his example, who watched and prayed, and the next day was faithful. And you're arguing against his words, which she said to Peter, watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation. Now, I don't think it's wise to argue with Jesus Christ. Peter shouldn't argue in the first place, and you and I shouldn't argue today. What Jesus said is true. There's an importance, a vital importance of surrender of myself to the Father's will. And I can be as determined as I want, but victory will not come until I watch and pray.
I don't know when temptation's coming. I don't know when the temptation to do what I've gotten on my knees and I've prayed about so many different times in my life. I don't know when that temptation is going to come, but it will come. So I got to be preparing now. I got to be getting ready now. Now, Jesus knew for Peter, it was just coming a few hours from then. And Jesus knew for himself, it's coming in a few hours. So Peter, he's sleeping. Jesus is watching and praying. Jesus is taking the time to do what was necessary so that he could be successful on the next day through all the way through death. And if that is, and if watching and praying is that powerful, you and I need it, desperately need it. But a lot of people are trying all sorts of formulas and ideas that they have come up with and things that they are going to do, and they just ignore the simple the straightforward, and it's not a simple thing to do, but just watching and praying, preparing ahead of time. You got to admit, I can't do it. I'm determined, but I can't do it. My spirit is willing, flesh is weak. And awareness, and an awareness that I've got to get ready because I don't know when my, my, my struggle is going to come. So I got an anger problem. So I got this problem. So I got this in my life. So I have this temptation in my life. I don't know when it's going to come. I, and you don't either. I don't know when the guy's going to cut me off next and get me angry. Do you? Just going to happen pretty much every day. But hey, you know, I don't know the time. I don't know when, it, when the event's going to happen. So look, I need to be watching now. I need to be preparing now. I need to be getting my Bible on and finding out what the Bible has to say. Jesus said, it is written. Scripture must be fulfilled over and over. He talked about the Bible. He said, you know, so... So that the scriptures might be fulfilled, Jesus said. You can see it on the cross like three or four different times. So we see Jesus Christ just constantly thinking about and pondering, here's Bible truth, here's what I need to know, here's what the Bible said, and so, hey, listen, I'm going to live in light of that truth. I'm going to watch. I'm going to do the preparation that I can do. I am going to search the word of God. I am going to hide God's word in my heart. I'm going to keep my mind, if you would, flooded with Bible truth. I'm going to replace the wrong thinking, have my mind renewed by the word of God so that I can be ready when the temptation comes and when I'm faced with it. And then I'm going to get on, the, on my knees before the Father and I'm going to say, God, I can't do it on my own. I need your help. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. So there needs to be an admission. I can't do it. There needs to be an awareness. I got to get ready. There needs to be an act. Not an act, not a show act. But an act, I need to pray right. This is challenging to me. Okay, hang with me just a few more minutes. I wonder if people fail to pray right. As I was looking through this passage, I asked the question, I wonder if people know how to pray. You say, what do you mean by that? How do you pray about something that tempts you? Lord, take away the temptation. Lord, I don't want to struggle with this anymore. I don't want to be unfaithful to you. By the way, could God do that? Yeah, that'd be nice. But that isn't what he promised to do. And get this, Jesus didn't say, Lord, give me strength today. He didn't, he didn't pray those, you know what he prayed? 
Not my will, but thine be done. So, Lord, let's say, say I'm struggling with, with temper. Lord, I know tests are going to come today. I know they will. And I, I want your will to be done. I just, I'm surrendering to your will. And I know your will is for me not to lose my temper. So, Father, here am I. I'm yours. Have you prayed that way about what you struggle with? Not, Lord, take it away. Don't, don't put me in that tempting situation. Lord, I just, I just need more strength. And, and the Father said, if it be possible, let this cup pass me. But I know that's, that's not. So nevertheless, not my will but thine. So Lord, anytime you put a test in front of me, I, I'm just surrendering to you. Do you don't you find this intensely practical? Because it's a tale of two people. One guy did what he needed to do. And he was a complete success. And another didn't do what he should have done. And most people would have thought, that's insignificant. He slept. Big deal. It was a big deal. And some of, some of us, I'm going to put us in there, all right? This is not just you. Some of us will fail this week because we act like Peter rather than Jesus. And it's all in just three words. Watch and pray. So will you? Or are you going to be like the fly who keeps trying, keeps flying into the same stupid window he can't get through? Or will you just take another direction? Jesus' direction. And find what you need to be a success in your Christian life for the glory of God. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. I think God's worked because God's word is true and God said his word will never return void. And I think some Christians need this just like I did. Some of us need to get on the Jesus pattern rather than the Peter pattern. And I want to encourage you to do that today. When we have a hymn of invitation, after I pray, I just want to encourage you to do business with God. I, I, it, may, it may be a great number of people, it may just be a few, whatever, but I want to encourage you to do business with God. And if, if self-determination has been, not been working, and it won't, has not been working for you, that maybe today you just need to surrender and say, okay, Lord, I'm going to follow Jesus' pattern for the glory of God.
and I need your help. Would you do that? Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for how it works. And I thank you for the powerful message in Mark chapter 14 from a guy who failed, but a, a man who succeeded. And the difference was those three words, watch and pray. Father, help us to be people who do that very thing. And, and maybe learn more what that means. That we might, with your power and help, be victorious Christians doing the will of the Father on a daily basis. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. Please don't look around. Don't worry about anyone else. If you're able, right now, stand to your feet. Would you do that? If you're able to do that right now, just stand to your feet. If God has worked in your heart and you just need to, to talk to him about this and you need to do business with him, then there's room up here. There's room right where you're at to, for you to sit down, to kneel, to talk to the Lord about it. But listen, don't leave this place like Peter. Leave like Jesus. Watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. If God's spoken to you as he begins to play right now, why don't you do business with God? Right now, right where you're at. Father, thank you so much for working in Mark's heart, the writer of this book, to share with us two people and how one won the victory and the other didn't and what made the difference. And I pray that every Christian in this room would live in light of that truth and may it make a difference in the way we act and what we do this week. And I'll thank you for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. Lord bless you as you watch and pray. You're dismissed. Mm -hmm.